Randy Goodrum has a gift, and for over 30 years he shared it with us all in the form of hit songs that are timeless. His compositions have been sung by artists such as Ann Murray, England Dan and John Ford Coley, Toto, Chicago, Steve Perry, Al Jarreau, Johnny Lang, Steve Lukather, and well, the list goes on and on. Goodrum's extensive work with Chet Atkins early on helped to open the door to opportunities that would blossom for the rest of his career. But his success has not been a consequence of luck. It took the classically trained pianist about 10 years before a songwriting effort would be recorded. He's achieved an elite status in the world of songwriters, and his accomplishments are as heralded as such names as Burt Bacharach, Carol King, Paul Williams, Carol Bayer Sager, and Paul Simon. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome an icon in the music business, Randy Goodrum. Hey, Randy, thanks for joining us today. Hi, and glad to be here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's no secret, you know, Eddie and I have, have been professing for years that we're self-proclaimed fans of Toto and, and have <laughs> been, you know, well, pretty much forever. But we're also a couple of liner notes geeks. And, uh, of course, you know, back in the day when all you had was the record, the album cover, and, you know, and a sleeve with those notes on notes. it, you, you didn't really have the instant access, you know, to information like we do today with Google and all that, but about, you know, the band, the engineers, the writers, producers, et cetera. But, you know, you only, you only had the credits on, you know, on the sleeve and, uh, right. and six point font or something like that. <laughs> it was real <laughs> small. And of course, and of course your imagination. And then, uh, when I picked up the Toto liner notes, for example, I'd see names like, you know, Page, Lukather, Percaro, but oftentimes there was this, this Goodrum name that would pop up. And I always wondered, you know, <laughs> Well, who in the heck is that guy? And, you know, well, eventually I re- discovered Randy Goodrum and, and the association you've had with so many amazing artists over the years. So now it's, you know, it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> Secrets out. Oh, exactly. Glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I do consider uh, uh, somebody will, will meet me sometime and they'll say, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm a songwriter. And they go, uh, and, and they, they, I can tell that they haven't heard of me. You know, and I say, well, it's okay. I'm in the anonymous part of the business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you've enjoyed a very unique and, and how should I say, a highly coveted position in the music business for for years, and it's um, it's not necessarily publicized like this, but you know, you we all know that, uh, and even our listeners know that you've been a member of this elite club of writers for many years, and and me and Rick were talking about uh, this. Uh, we were naming names uh, right before the interview, and we said Paul Simon, Carol Bayer Sager, Paul Anka, you know, Carol King, and and your names right up there with these guys and uh, a quick question is without being too philosophical about you know being one of the most called upon songwriters what do you think you have in common with these with these songwriters I mean without getting way too uh, deep more of a wide angle lens well I don't know I, uh, it's, it's that's really difficult to uh, to answer mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know how many writers really stop and and try to figure that one out, but, you know, there are things about uh, the people that you mentioned that I have in common, and uh, I've heard offhand and not directly, but some comments and and, uh, stories about those kinds of writers, and like Paul Simon, for instance, uh, you know, uh, he he never has been, if you really think about it, he's not really a terrific singer, you know, and I don't mean that in a critical way, but... Mm -hmm. But he, he uh, I heard him, somebody say, I don't know if it's true or not, that he just gets out of the way and lets the song do the work. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, that is that is a really strong, uh, there's a lot of uh, information in that, in, in, if you think about that. Yeah. And that the song actually, um, I, I realized then that I, I had always thought that uh, if I really did good work, my work would, wor- would do my work for me. In other exactly. words, you know, you can... Instead of having to uh, know this person or to to have some uh, line of BS to try to sell yourself, <laughs> the best thing to do is is prepare the best kind of work that is the most sincere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, I think a lot of those people, I've worked with some people like that, and and I notice one thing in common is that they, the real writers feel like they have to be moved and not just have it work in their head. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Uh, they, you know, it may look and and sound like a hit, but it's it. There's got to be some emotional movement going on. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And and um, you know, a young writer uh, would think that uh, in terms of the emotional part, that you know. A person has to be literally blown across the room and hit the back wall, and they hear their song, or they, or, they, or it's not a hit. But really, 
uh, if you can genuinely, I mean genuinely, move somebody uh, just a, a few percentage points to the point where they're they're still thinking about the song the next day, mm-hmm. then you've really done your job, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so I think that those are things that I've I've, I've shared with some of the people because I've heard stories later, and, and I would say, well, yeah, I, I, I do the same thing, or I think the same way, you know. So we must have that in common, but yeah. Well, I was just, you know, it was over the past few days, me and Rick have sort of been, you know, listening to a lot of the work that you've written over the years. And you know what? It, it is. It's very simple. It's But they're, they're such, how should I say, they're almost like little gifts of, of these uh, melodic hooks and the, the lyrics that they seem so simple, but they, they're probably so difficult to write. I remember listening to songs by uh, Peter Allen and also a track by Paul Williams when he wrote Evergreen for Barbara Streisand. And and uh you know they're so simple but they have those really simple hooks and you know it like you say it doesn't have to blow you away they they're just it's just high quality you know well you know um you can see a uh a commercial of of, of some little cat that's in a homeless shelter and and you get a <laughs> you know you you feel almost like a tear welling up you know and that is the, the, the I mean I'm not saying that you have to write uh, sappy songs. My, you know, you can move somebody uh, to be sentimental. You can move them to be uh, uh, happier, uh, sad, mm-hmm. angry, uh, jealous. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of of. Uh, if you looked at uh, emotions as a pie chart, there's a, there's every kind of wedge you can imagine yeah. that you can that you can move somebody. But that I, I would say that's that's something I try to do. I mean, I hate to. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's that, at least that works for me. Mm-hmm. And another thing about, uh, and, and I'll, I will tell you this: that I wrote for a long time, and uh, before I started really sort of figuring out my own style. And one of the things you talk about the simple is that, um, you know, the way we're talking today. If we were to take our sentences and uh, graph them out uh, in terms of uh, rise and fall of our expressions. Uh, a, a melody, a really p- good melody to me uh, that's married with the lyrics sort of travels the same uh, and goes at the same rate as conversation does. Mm, that's true. You know, it, the yeah. pause between, it, if you say something and you want, to, you want it to sink in, then you, you leave a little gap. And, uh, and you, uh, if you want to emphasize something, you kind of raise your pitch a little bit. So, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, a lot of times when I'm writing, you know, I start off as a, a writer just writing words and music, you know, totally. And uh, I mean, as a matter of fact, I I didn't really intend to be a hit songwriter. I was a, a musician, and I wrote hoping somebody would cut something someday. But so I wrote for about ten years before anybody cut anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I sort of just discovered these things from uh, from my hits and misses of trying to write a good song and. Uh, you know, when I wrote songs like uh, Bluer Than Blue and You Needed Me, for instance, those mm-hmm. are classic examples of my style, which would be uh, that the conversational style of the lyric has the same rise and fall in the melody as you would in regular conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned just a second ago that, you know, you didn't you didn't garner instant success. In fact, you, you just mentioned also that you wrote songs for, you know, close to 10 years before someone recorded one of your songs. And you know, tell us about that ten-year period when you know the trials and the tribulations of of climbing up that you know songwriting mountain. Well, it, honestly, it, it was uh, not a mountain, and I'm not trying to uh, uh, throw water on your uh, expression. Actually, for some people, it is. Mm-hmm. But for me, uh, songwriting was something that uh, I uh, that sort of found me. I was in college. I was a pianist uh, major. And a buddy of mine in my freshman year asked me to help him write a musical. And mm. I said, I don't write songs. I mean, I was a jazz player at the time, so I knew how to improvise music from mm-hmm. nothing. And But uh, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a songwriter. And he goes, well, I, I don't have time to do it, and if you can't help me, then I just won't do it. It was a little college. And so I said, okay, I'll give it a whack for one day. We'll see. So I ended up uh, ended up writing most of the musical, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it, and it was easy. You know, I thought, I mean, not that songwriting is easy, it wasn't, but it was easier than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And 
so then I wrote another musical, actually, uh, during the time I was in college. So, so that was my first introduction to songwriting. And then I started writing individual songs as a result of that. And, and um, <clears throat> then um, during the time that uh, I decided, I, actually I looked at going to Indiana uh, to, to grad school, and, but I was so tired of, of, of college, I thought I'd take a year off. And Uncle Sam had other ideas, and so I ended up in the Army. <laughs> so I was in the Army band, and I had a lot of time on my hands, so that's when I sat and started trying to write songs. And I would write these uh, the words and the music and the piano score and everything. I didn't know the rules. I mean, I didn't know you didn't have to do all that, but I did. And uh, and and I, I they were okay, uh, mm-hmm. mostly bad. And uh, <laughs> but they were but every you know every one of them was a little better than the one before. Right. Right. And, right. and the thing is, though, uh, even then, as 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 in jazz, if something. Uh, would bother me, or, or I was moved and, and wanted to get something out of my system, I found it, I could sit down and write, write it as a song, and, it would, it, and I would write it down on the paper, you know, lyrics, and it would, it would get it out of my system. It was very cathartic. So I said, hey, this is cool. This is songwriting thing is, is, is very good. It's like self-therapy. And, you know, if... if if somebody really upset me or, or something upset me, especially, I could sit. I used to go sit down and play play it out of my system as a player, but but then I found I could just sit and write it and, and you know poke fun at it or whatever. And then it was it was like great. I loved that. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it wasn't so much a mountain as it was just uh, an adventure. You know, right, it a, right. It was like a great hobby. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the people who listen to Inside Music Cast, they're musicians and songwriters themselves. And, you know, continuing on with that question to a degree, you know, for those aspiring songwriters who listen to us and are listening to this interview right now, in hindsight, what kept your drive alive in terms of not wanting to to throw on your towel and just keep pushing? And this is, you know, for all those aspiring songwriters who are listening right now. Well, I mean, there were a few people, and, and not just my family and friends, Along the way, who took notice of some of my stuff? I mean, they weren't they weren't famous people. They were. Uh, mm-hmm. My first publisher was an old fishing buddy of mine from Hot Springs, where I grew up, uh-huh. who moved to Nashville. And you know, oh, I guess five or six years into my writing, he heard some of my stuff and said, "You know, he." he I remember he said, "I don't really understand what you're doing. All I know is I like it." And so, you know, it was like uh, Mark Twain said once, "I can go two weeks on a single compliment." Well, you know, I took about. You know, he would make a comment like that, and I and I would write furiously for the next three months, uh, just hoping to get another one one of those comments. You know, and yeah. uh, so I had I had some encouragement here and there. Plus, when I got out of the service, I I, I went out to L.A. Mm-hmm. I drove out there in nineteen uh, a long time ago, <laughs> and um, and I met with I actually did some cold calls with uh, some publishers and stuff, and, really? and of course my my music was not good, but I got some great tips, and I felt like I had some sort of glimpse of the uh, business. And, you know, w- one of my pieces of advice is to get on a plane and just go places and, and meet, see things. You don't have to become the life of the party, but just yeah. get your feet wet. I mean, you can read magazines and go to seminars all you want, but, you know, you've you got to go uh, where the biz is and, and uh, mm-hmm. throw your stuff out there and and get some feedback. Yeah, another and, thing. Yeah, you know who uh, has sort of a parallel story is uh, we interviewed a while back Stephen Bishop, and he told us. Remember, Rick, he was telling us about how he moved to L.A. Yes, you know, it was all or nothing. Went out there, and you know yeah. he was at that time he was a writer. He wasn't really a singer player. I mean, he was just yeah. a writer, and he was trying to get a gig, and he was knocking on every single door just to get a publicist or right, a, right. or a, you know a, to get to get signed somewhere. And mm-hmm. it took him the longest time. But you're right; it was it was all or nothing. Um, I have a question during that time when you were moving to L.A. So what kind of things were you listening to? I mean, what kind of things were you, uh, uh, obviously there was a lot of happening in, 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 uh, in you know, in, in rock music back right Well, here's the, the thing. I went to L.A. Uh-huh. and I didn't stay there. What happened was, hmm. I, I was a musician. I, I was making a, a, a pretty good living playing uh, dates around uh, Little Rock and and then, uh, you know, uh, I was, uh, and my wife was teaching school, so, I, you know, we weren't rich, but we were we were comfortable, and uh, mm-hmm. 
and uh, so I was just looking around. So I went. I went to LA. I stayed there for a couple of months, and and I realized what an effect being there was going to have on my writing. And I was it was such a strong magnetic power there that I, I was afraid I was going to end up sounding. I was going to kind of lose whatever uniqueness I had as a writer. Yeah. And uh, and I also uh, it was a bit of a leap for us to move out there that, that quickly anyway. And so I was back in Little Rock trying to figure out what to do, and my friend Bob Millsap up in uh, Nashville says, why don't you come to Nashville and check it out? And I said, man, I, I, am, I, I have no uh, knowledge of country music, and I'm a jazz guy and classically trained. And he said, no, just check it out, man. They do everything here. And I said, well, it's certainly closer to Arkansas than California, so I'll give it a try. Well, he was my publisher. Uh, he was the guy that was... Well, that was uh, interested in my stuff and giving me encouragement okay. and ended up being my first publisher. He's the guy that published You Needed Me and so forth. Mm-hmm. What happened was when I got there, he hired me on a couple of recording sessions and I instantly fell in love with playing uh, piano in the studio, playing keyboards. Cool. And so I, was a, I, I, I said, well, I can be a studio musician and if I don't get a song cut, at least I can, uh, you know, I'll have some fun and, and uh, you know, play some dates around town on the side, whatever. And uh, you know, I got it. I got uh, a job uh, playing the road with uh, Roy Orbison right away, and then uh, switched over to uh, Jerry Reed uh, and Chet Atkins and people like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you know, there was a, it, it was, and it, it was really great for my writing because I didn't have a strong pop thing going on there, so I could develop my style. And I could I could sort of glean from the discipline of how they write lyrics in Nashville and uh, let that affect me. Um, and you know I could raise my family there. It's uh, you know and, and I so anyway that's 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 how I did it, which is not linear at all. I mean it's not uh, uh, not typical at all. But then I would I'd, almost immediately after I started getting songs cut, I started going to L.A. regularly, and uh, and and then about. Uh, August 1982, we moved out there, and um, by then I'd already uh, I'd already formed uh, really good business associations with uh, you know Jed Graydon and and uh, Foster and and uh, Steve Luther, Bill Schnee, all those guys, you know. Right. And, uh, so I was there quite a bit already. Well, this this brings me to an interesting question. We're talking about that time period where. You know, you're starting to write and starting to get picked up. Some of your songs are getting picked up and recorded. And what was your first hit song? Was it was it "Sad to Belong" by England? Yeah, Dan and it John was. Ford? It was it. You're exactly right. Okay. Yep. A lot of people were telling me it was the it was "You Needed Me," but I really think that no. that was a year before "You Needed Me." Yeah, actually, I think. Let me see if I can figure out the uh, chronology of it. I, you know, it's funny. I'm the worst at that, but I know "Sad to Belong" was the first one, and I believe. There was a uh, the second one was before my heart finds out, which was Gene Cotton, mm-hmm. and then and then it was bluer than blue, and then it was you needed me. Okay. And uh, I know bluer than blue preceded you needed me because uh, the record company it was it was it entered the it was entering the top ten at number ten, mm-hmm. and the record label put out the next single, uh, bluer than blue, which course killed it but hey i'm happy i don't care if it was number one or not it was it was yeah. still, it was still a popular song you know so you know when you're brought in to write with with some of these amazing artists or how, however that works uh, how do you approach these various collaborations i mean it's obviously it's a variety of styles that you've written for but how do you approach and i this is a small question i'm sure with a multifaceted answer but i'm just in a nutshell well i try to just bring what I have, it's sort of like I, I look at, at, at what I am as an ingredient in a recipe, and it's not going to do them any good if I try to uh, do them, you know? It's like uh, when I wrote Love Lies with uh, Michael McDonald, that was the first thing we wrote together. Um, I, I just had a snippet of a song, and he had a snippet of a song, and we pasted them together, and there was Love Lies. Now, yeah. in the case of... Uh, of Foolish Heart, which I wrote, was the first song I wrote with Steve Perry. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. uh, it's interesting. He called me to write based on a recommendation of, of uh, 
Andy Newmark, who's a great drummer that mm-hmm. I worked with in New York and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a good friend of Steve's. Steve was going to do a solo record, and Andy says, you need, to use, you need to write with this guy, Randy Goodrum. And he named a couple of my songs, and Steve says, oh, yeah, I know the songs. And so he called me, and I, on, my, on my way out to L.A., I was living in Connecticut at the time, um, I thought to myself, well, you know, he may, have, he may have made a mistake. He may have the wrong idea of, of what I uh, am going to be doing. Of course, the journey was the biggest thing in the world right then. Yeah, true. So I said... I, I, I'm not going to do him any good if I go in and try to be John Jonathan Kane. <laughs> so I I sort of had a little start that I felt was really genuinely me. I said, I'll I'll bring a little of who I am, and we'll see if we can find that middle ground, which I think is a good definition for co-writing anyway, because, you know, you don't want to try to have the other person sound like you or you sound like them. You try to find that place that neither one of you can get to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Anyway, I, I brought him a little start for Foolish Heart, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, this could this could be over in five minutes, <laughs> and uh, he'll be happy, and I'll be happy, and so on. But it was the first of eight songs I wrote, wrote on that record, so wow. um, it works out. So that's my recommendation: is um, just bring you, and but you have to spend a few years figuring out who that is, yeah. and um, because everybody in the world is different. So why can't our styles be different as well? You know, I'm I'm really dismayed when I see young writers come to town, either Nashville or L.A. or anywhere, yeah. and inside of a year or so, they they might as well, you know, they sound like everybody else. Right. No, that <laughs> sure. was that was a great album with Steve Perry as that was his first solo album, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, I mean, it, it was just loaded with so much good work. Uh, um, we have a question right here from an IMC Inside Musicast fan, and his name's uh, uh, is that P.O. Nielsen from P.O. Nielsen, uh-huh. yeah, Helsingborg, Sweden, and he wants to know about the experience, and, and it has to do with what you're talking about right now, Randy. Yeah, he wants to know about the experience of co-writing with musicians who you don't know, as opposed to you know uh, someone that you've had uh, some experience with um, or have known for a little short time. Uh, have you been, uh, how many of those situations have you uh, been confronted with? Well, b- many, many, because uh, the thing is this, um, my approach to working with somebody is, you know, we don't have to go have lunch and talk about it, and we don't have to, you know, have each other over to our houses mm-hmm. to meet the family and stuff like that. Uh, I think I think you get to know somebody during the work because if you write if you write from your insides then you're going to pretty much be uh, letting somebody know who you are uh, by the time the song is done. Uh you you quite often you, you you make pretty much lifelong friendships when you when you write a few songs with somebody because you find out a lot about the other person, you know, and uh I, I would. I, my publishers around the world will hook me up with people sight unseen, never met them before. Uh, you know, we we walk in a room and and you know, where do I sit? And we start working and uh, and let the music, and we just we just sort of let the music or the song be the center, and we just kind of walk around it like a sculpture and just keep working on it together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that, thanks for answering that. I, that uh, was P.O. Nilsson. He was he's over in Sweden and he's a big fan of yours. Yeah. Um, Glad. And then, uh, you know, we talked a second ago about the song You Needed Me, uh, recorded by Ann Murray, and that was a number one hit. That was, your f- that was the first number one hit you wrote, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Well, that song was sort of atypical in a sense that— well, it was the that- first number one pop song. I mean, I had a lot of number one AC songs and, oh, okay. and stuff like that, but that was definitely the, the first full-on pop song. Okay. Right. All right. But that song was sort of atypical in a sense that it was uh, a song without a chorus— and yep. I think I, I read somewhere that you know around that during that time that the song was rejected at first uh, because many of this fact. Times. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, too many to count, really. Yeah, really? yeah. Uh, but you know what? Another thing is, you know, when you're ready for the business, when you can hear the word no, and and you don't want to just go pack it up and move home. You know, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, and that sounds sort of almost obnoxious to say that, but really, you have to sort of get a sense of writing right or wrong within you when when uh, people, will, you know, they'll make suggestions all the time, well, you need to go do this and do that, and then you have to decide, well, do I really want to do that or not, you know? Because sometimes a publisher will say, 
uh, this verse is too long or, or you need to uh, modulate here or something like that. And, and, you know, it may be a great idea. But on the other hand, you may, something inside of you may say, you know, that kind of ruins it for me. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people ask me, you know, they say, well, why don't you put a chorus in it? I say, well, it doesn't need a chorus. And it would be too long, and it just doesn't need a chorus. Mm-hmm. And and then I would have to name songs like you know when Sunny gets blue or something like that, and and go back and show them other songs that had the same form. Mm-hmm. And you know, form is a tool. It's it, it you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't let let it rule you. I'm not every song doesn't have to have the same pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can have it all be all verses, all choruses. Uh, it can be anything you want, really. Well, I want to use uh, this song, You Needed Me, as, as, as sort of my example. And what I want to ask is, is first of all, did you write that song prior to – you didn't write it specifically for Anne Murray. That was a song you had written that you were, I guess, in a sense, shopping around or introducing to people, correct? Well, here's what happened. Uh, I, I started off writing melodies because uh-huh. – uh, and again, I, as I said and naively uh, – I thought that if you were going to be a songwriter, you should know how to write both words and music. Mm-hmm. So music for me was pretty easy to write, okay. but the words were uh, were, the, were it was difficult to find a, 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 a lyric style and to sort of find my way as a, as a lyricist. And mm-hmm. that's what took a long time. But what happened with "You Need Me" was that I wrote it as a melody and. Unlike what I usually do, usually when I write a melody, I'm almost simultaneously writing uh, the words because I know what I want to write about. The music tells me what it wants to be about and so forth. Interesting. But in the case of You Needed Me, I wrote it as a melody, and I said, well, I'll, get, I'll write a lyric to that someday. Well, that was kind of a mistake because years later, I finally got an angle on what to write about. I would sit down <laughs> at that song, and I would say, and I'd write one day, and then I would just say, no. Nope, that's not it. That's not what I want. So, mm-hmm. but then one day I sat down and I found the premise that I wanted. So, mm-hmm. well, how different was uh, Anne Murray's version? Did she uh, have any uh, input? I mean, when no. she recorded, did she pretty much keep it the same as you had? Oh yeah, created? absolutely. Oh, okay. She right. she uh, I, I mailed it to her of all things uh-huh. in the mail, wow. and uh, she received it. And uh, I think she stuck it in a box for a couple of months. Of of well, maybe I'll listen again. And then she dug it out and said, oh, of course I'm going to cut this. And so I, I had no idea uh, that she was going to do it. And uh, as a matter of fact, she, uh, her producer, Jim Ed Norman, uh, and her were in the studio in Toronto tr- cutting it, and the tape box had my name on it. Uh-huh. But there, were, uh, there was no publishing information. There was no phone number. I don't know how, how that happened. But uh, anyway, they, figured, they said, well, maybe he lives in Nashville. So they called Nashville Information. And they got my phone number, and they called up one Saturday of all things. Saturday night, my I was I was at a night to Columbus playing the piano for a, a casual gig, and my wife answered. And Jim Ed says, "Hi, I'm Jim Ed Norman. I've done strings for the Eagles, and uh, you know, for did Juice Newton." And she says, "Yes, I know who you are." And he said, Do you, "We're we're in the studio with Ann Murray, and and we'd like to record this song. You needed me. Would that be okay?" And she says, "I think that'd be fine." <laughs> So that's how that happened. Okay. That's it, huh? No problem. You know, I mean, sometimes (laughs) it's that crazy. And, uh, uh, you know, I I have, there's other stories like that, but to this day, I still have a listed number. And a lot of times people say, I've gone everywhere trying to find your phone number. And I said, you call information. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's what that story is about. Because I saw the, you and Eddie were having a conversation in Facebook and, uh, and you mentioned that. You mentioned it to ask us a story about why your, your number's still listed. <laughs> still <in the> phone book. <laughs> well, Jim Ed Normal will still call once in a while out of the blue. He'll be at somebody's house or in a studio or something, and he'll call and say, See, I told you, it's unlisted. I mean, you still got a listed number. You know, I said, Oh, you're doing that bit, right? And he goes, Yeah. <laughs> that's a good story yeah hey let's talk about toto and and, and steve lukather and the guys you've you've known sure. them for a long long time and uh i'm very curious to know uh when was your first encounter with this group of uh crazy musicians well here's what happened see uh again i i this is what i i urge songwriters to do if you can scrape together i mean you know you can fly on southwest or you mm-hmm. can Get a cheap ticket. Go find a cheap place to stay and, and go to places 
that you want to meet people and just, just go there, even if you end up going and not meeting anybody. Because I, I used to go to L.A. and uh, um, just to sort of meet a friend and make a contact and then kind of spread out from there and based on, you know, try to uh, network with some people. And during that period, uh, my, I, I made a uh, friendship with uh, Bill Schnee, who was a friend of Kyle Lenning, who cut Sad of Along and produced that. You know, he introduced me to Bill one day. Mm-hmm. And so then Bill was familiar with my music, and he suggested to Steve Luke there. He says, hey, you ought to write with this guy. So Luke had a couple of melodies, and I wrote some lyrics to it. And uh, then I, when I moved out there from Connecticut, see, we lived in uh, Nashville, then we moved to Connecticut for a little while. And mm-hmm. then I moved, I was on a plane to L.A. all the time, so we just moved to L.A. And uh, so Luke and I started writing together, and we wrote... Uh, we just enjoyed writing together, but we weren't writing for Toto at all because Toto used, they were uh, a self-contained band. They didn't sure, yeah. have writers at all. Mm-hmm. So I never had any hope or dream of writing anything for those guys, although I had, I had worked with uh, the guys as musicians on you know, playing on records and mm-hmm. things, other people's records. But, mm-hmm. So I knew them personally. But um, anyway, one day we got a call from Umberto Gatica. Mm-hmm. Steve was at my house. We were writing. And uh, it was about, uh, we'd written about seven, eight songs together. And so Umberto says, hey, he was in the studio with Julio Iglesias. He says, can you write something beautiful for us, Julio? And so we looked at Steve, and Steve looked at me, and we said, you know, gosh, man, we, I don't know if that's going to happen, you know, because I can't imagine us writing something for Julio Iglesias. I mean, we, <laughs> the stuff we wrote, I, I mean, I'll do respect it. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Right, no, just, right, right. I just thought, boy, that is like, woo. And yeah. so we sat down and we started thinking of something kind of like that. And, and it was in a sort of a mellower fashion than we had been writing. And, and inside of about five, maybe not even five minutes, we realized we had left, that the Julio Iglesias concept had left the building. <laughs> and, and we were, we were, but we liked where we were. Uh-huh. So we wrote what eventually became I'll Be Over You. Yeah, and uh, and what happened was, the reason Toto cut it, I, we did the demo in my studio, and I you know I programmed the drums and did all that other stuff, and and Luke sang it, and so on and so forth, and uh, just so happened that my studio monitors were a uh, hybrid Yamaha NS10 that had oak cabinets, and the only other pair... Interesting. I have a pair of those still. <laughs> well, the only other pairs that, that I knew of in town were Val Garay had some, because they he was building them. He was going to sell them and stuff. Yeah. And David Page had a pair. Oh, yeah. So I told Luke, I said, I don't know how these things sound. I, I've never really mixed and listened outside of my studio to see how they sound. So when your Page is rehearsing, they were rehearsing for their tour, total was... So when you guys are on a break, go in there and put it up on his console and listen and let me know if there's too much low end or, you know, this and that. Well, this is what Luke, this is, and I suddenly I get a phone call from Luke and, you know, he went in, like I said, and, and he played the track, uh, played the tape and was, you know, didn't even have it up loud and he was listening. And it was Paige or, or, or Jeff came in the room and said, we're cutting that. And Luke says, well, Randy's on it. And they said, doesn't matter. <laughs> and so they cut it. And it was, uh, and then after that, uh, I was able to to get more things and, uh, you know, and lots and lots of uh, fun because those records were just stupendously well made. Yeah, definitely. It's an amazing track. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. I'll be over you. But, uh, you know, one thing that's really unique about uh, this, this, uh, this track, and me and Rick were just talking about this a few minutes ago, is that, there's no musical intro. I mean, it starts exactly... Well, there's I mean, a story behind that. Tell us about that, because, you know, uh, everybody knows this song. I mean, live well, is, I think, is different. I think you know? that's one of the coolest things about it, yeah. personally. But I don't know if I should even be telling this story, but uh, Jeff Beccaro and, and, uh, was a... I think he was a fan of my drum programming, you know, and... Uh, everybody uh, is, yeah. And so, I mean, we had a lot of the same philosophy about that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. he... Uh, even though he was a drummer, he he, he enjoyed programming too and stuff but but we you know i programmed as if i was playing it and so just you know i didn't do loops and things like that and so played it all the way through and everything yeah. so the demo has two bars out front of of drums playing that that pattern and then he comes in and sings 
Well, Jeff had the track in his earphones when he put the drums down, my demo. Okay. And so the first two bars were, uh, you, know, he, he, you know, there's no count-in, so he used the first two bars as the count-in. Okay. And then the song starts with the, the vocal cold. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's how that happened. It's sort of like that little vocal triplet. I think it's, some people live their dreams, da 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 and yeah. just jumps right in. That, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I like cold starts. You know, that's another thing. It's like, you know, I think the listening public is smarter than a lot of people think in our business. Mm-hmm. And they like something different. Right. You know, it's not like uh, we were giving them some uh, bizarre thing. It was a real simple melody, really. And uh, so... I don't think they were going to call the police because it didn't have an intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Lukather, is a, he's, he's a good friend of the show, and we know that you, know, you two have a pretty extensive working relationship together. And, and one thing that you know, we know is that you know, anytime you're around the guy, there's, there's bound to be some funny stories <laughs> that come from hanging with the guy. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your experiences with Luke just in, you know, from a, maybe a writing perspective and if there's any, uh, any like, off-the-cuff fun stories you want to mention well, about him. Part of the reason that, that we work and have done so much together is that, you know, there are a few, there's a handful of people who, when they sit down and they start playing, uh, especially if they're playing melodies, because, you know, Luke, Luke is a, a really great uh, musician and, and songwriter. Of course, yeah. And he'll, he, he depends on me, uh, you know, to help with the music, but primarily for me to, uh, to do the lyrics. Uh, and that's fine. I, you know, I do uh, come up with uh, quite a bit of musical input. But the thing is, I'm, the thing is, when he starts playing music, I mean, lyrics and concepts just come flying out of my head. I mean, uh, he just pulls mm-hmm. them out of me, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just I just savor writing with him. Now, there's a few other people like that, but they um, they're not. There's not a lot of them, but he's one of them. I mean, you know, I've written for. Uh, I'm on his new record. I've written on right. a lot of his solo records. Uh, you know, and and to me, I I, it, I would rather write with somebody, um, just to, because I love writing, working with him than yeah. than any other reason, really. Sure. Well, you mentioned his last album, Ever Changing Times. In fact, you uh, uh, you you help. Uh, I think you co-wrote that track. Were there other tracks on that album that you assisted in? Yeah, I, uh, I I co-wrote quite a few of them. Actually, mm-hmm. what happened was a, a Japanese company uh, uh, asked me to A and R for them mm-hmm. uh, briefly, and and uh, so they asked me which artist would be one that I would like to work with. And of course, I mentioned Luke. I, I've always thought Luke was a great standalone artist. Uh, uh, I know he he was a total member, but I've always thought he was a legitimate artist on his own. Eddie just mentioned that you did some writing on Ever Changing Times, but what about the most recent album, All's Well That Ends Well? Yes, I wrote a song on there called Brody's. Brody's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I wrote that, and uh, he came to Nashville, and we uh, we had a very brief writing period, but uh, but it was very productive, and uh, and I'll and I'm going to go back and write with him for for the for the next one as well. But cool, you know, he he sort of had a um, he has a concept pretty much for every album he does, and that one had sort of a flavor or in a but he needed something like Brody's. And so mm-hmm. um, when I heard a lot of the other tracks, I thought, well, uh, my thought was, you know, let's do, let's do a really fun thing that he can do live and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get some airplay. To, you know. That's a fun tune. I mean, I like writing songs for people that I know they're going to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it, the point is, uh, that's really what the point is. Well, um, let's move on and talk about um, your collaboration with, with Jay Graydon. And uh, when did you, you know, first hook up with Jay, and what were you uh, both doing at the time, and uh, around the time that you guys met each other? I, I met Jay in 1980. Um, we both were on a panel at the Phoenix Songwriters Association. I don't mm-hmm. know if it was the Phoenix or the Northern or the Arizona Songwriters. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I flew there for that, and they came over. It was, it was me. Bill Champlin, David Foster, and Jay Graydon. Hmm, okay. So I met all those guys that day. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, wow. we hit it off, and, and Jay was a, a major fan of Bluer Than Blue. I'll never forget that. And, uh, of course, I, 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 I liked all those guys. And, uh, but Jay uh, and I, I don't know, we hit it off in, in a different way. I mean, uh, he has one foot in jazz as well, like me. Yeah. And, uh, 
we had studios. You know, you had a studio, and I had a studio, and we we would always compare notes about gear and stuff like that, and and, and we and we became friends. And then he, Gail, and I, my, my wife and my kids were, were looking for a place to uh, out of L.A. to get away from the crowds. And so Jay told us about a place in Cambria, California, which is Central California, and we so we moved up there, and we actually got a place there. And uh, he has a place there. And, and, of course, a lot of musicians, and Mike Landau has a place there and so forth. It's, it's just a nice little place. But also, uh, Jay, is um, he's a very generous guy and a uh, very, very uh, loyal kind of a guy. And when I, very, when I moved to L.A., he kept telling me, man, you need to just move here full time because I was always flying in. So that uh, right when I moved there, he was working on DeBarge. Yeah. Uh, and um, he... As he said, toss me a bone. He, he, he says that he had a, a melody. Uh, uh, he wanted some good lyrics for it, so he mm-hmm. he gave it to me, and I wrote uh, the lyrics for Who's Holding Donna Now. Right, right. And then uh, he was working with Al Jarreau, and he, you know, I wrote some stuff uh, for those projects. And so, yeah. I, and now um, we sort of uh, discovered another part of us with these uh, this jar record we did. Yeah. We're working working on another one of those, and it's it's really, uh, I, in a way, I wish we'd done it back then, but we were busy doing other stuff. So, yeah, you know, you spoke of this this Jar album when you started working with him. Uh, it was called a Scene Twenty Nine. It's a great album. I, lo- I love the music, and uh, you know, it's funny because we interviewed Jay back on Inside Music Cast uh, almost a couple years ago. And uh, we spoke extensively about that. And uh, and the way he described the project was he was, hey, it's sort of like a quasi-Steely Dan type of a, of, a, of a feel. And then we went on and we talked about different tracks. Um, in fact, you know, we I, I still remember quite vividly called Donovan Esquire, Your Heartbreak, Scene 29. Yeah, yeah. But, but there was, check this out, there was one track that he wouldn't discuss with us. In fact, he told us this. He says, you're going to have to ask Randy about this. The, tra- <laughs> the track is called Glenn's Hair. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, he's sort, of, he's sort of dodging that one, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, well, first one of all, thing who... that I found, you know, we're working on another record right now, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's one of these kind of things where uh, <laughs> uh, art is, is life, you know. Art is, uh, is a reflection of stuff that goes on around you, and uh, there may or may not be a guy named Glenn that we know, but it is based on something real. Yeah. And, it... But here's the thing about... Uh, jar in general. I've been going to Sweden a lot in Europe to work over the years because I, I, I really wasn't pulled in the direction of L.A. for a long time for some reason because the American music scene was, uh, I don't know, I, I needed to go somewhere where they still wanted really strong melodies and, and so forth, and I found Europe wanted that. So, But I, I started going back to, um, to L.A. When, around the time that uh, we were putting the record together for uh, Steve Lukather, The Ever-Changing Times. Right? Yeah, right. So I found myself out there a lot. So you know, I, I called Jay up and said, "Hey, let's let's get back in the groove again here." You know, and so we started writing a couple of things. And uh, you know, we a lot of time had gone by, and we hadn't been together for a while. And, and there was some stuff going on and around us. And so we wrote the first thing we wrote was "Your Heartbreak," and then we wrote um, "Cure Kid." I guess it was the next one. I don't know, but but around the time we started writing Donovan, I said, "You know what?" I don't think anybody's going to cut these, but us. And I said, and not only that, but this is too much fun, and I think we're a band. So yeah. we 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 committed to it, and uh, uh, and it's just been an absolute ball. I mean, it's it is, and the thing is, it's the kind of thing that um, that my writing is actually my writing improves mm-hmm. working on records like this. I yeah. mean, there there's work you can do. You know, you can write for the for the hit record market and and you can get so stale doing that you need right. to do something that really pushes your brain a little bit so that you have more to bring to the table yeah well speaking of uh we Eddie mentioned the uh the new jar album and or i think you actually mentioned that a second ago we have a inside music cast listener henrik hansen uh we're not sure where he's from but it's got to be someplace in europe yeah. and uh kurt struber from tucson arizona and they both kind of have the same question they want to know when the next jar album will be released yeah. I, I don't know when it's going to be released. We're we're working on it. Uh, we work on it as uh, as much as we can, and but we we take a long time doing these records, and uh, uh, it's not because they're 
tedious, but we just do. We just—he's a very thorough person. I'm a very thorough person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of writing, the writing doesn't take all that long, but the 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 making of the record. Uh, and besides, we're doing it ourselves. We don't have a deal like sure, sure. Dan. You know, we don't have a million dollar budget. We have a zero budget. <laughs> and right. So uh, we we do it on our own time with uh, our own resources, and uh-huh. uh, but it's gonna—you're gonna love it. Whoever. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, I assure you, it'll be, it, you'll have, if you like the first one, you'll really like the second one. That's good to know. Well, Kurt from Tucson had a follow-up question, and he said that he, he loves the drum programming on Scene 29, and he asks, uh, are there any secrets to your drum programming? I don't know if you're going to let out secrets, though. <laughs> well, no, here's, well, here's the thing. Um, work with a lot of drummers. You know, I, I was a studio musician, and uh-huh. I, and before that, I was a, you know, I played gigs for a living, and, and every kind of gig i played you know i was a serious jazz guy and played a lot of rock and and everything and so uh a lot of my really good friends were drummers and you know it's interesting the street talk record i did with steve perry uh-huh. uh, we he was having a hard time finding the right drummer for that record i mean there were a lot of great drummers but they just didn't have the thing he wanted and I realized uh, when Steve sat down to show somebody what uh, a pattern, I realized Steve was a drummer. And I said, whoa. Yeah. And when I heard him play, I said, I know who you need, Larry London. So I called Larry in Nashville, and he flew over and, uh, and made the record, the Street Talk record. Wow. So, so a lot, I know a lot of his licks. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of Kenny Malone's. I know a lot of Jeff's stuff, Jeff Picaro. Uh, a lot of, uh, and then, you know, there's other people that you sort of admire and you, you pay attention to. You know, Vinny Taliuta oh, yeah. and, and lots of folks that have these little signature things they do that stay with you. And so I know from years and years and years of programming uh, on a Lin 9000 and MPC and all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you just, it has to be, you don't want it to sound like a machine. You do everything you can to uh, avoid that. Right. And uh, you want a drummer to listen and say, man, that's cool. Yeah. Who's that? Sure. Well, Brian Pearson, he's our correspondent uh, from Chicago, and he wants to know if uh, you're using the, basically the same production formula on your second JAR album, uh, because the first one you were bas- basically just working virtually over the, the internet. And uh, he wants to know if, uh, if you've invited any guests to play on this one, or are you guys going to go uh, driving it yourselves? Well, you know, it's, uh, here's the problem with that. We have lots and lots of friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, you know, if you run into Nathan East or Lukather or uh, or Champlin or uh, anybody, you know, a lot of people that know the record and really like it, Luke, you know, and, and if if I don't use all those guys, somebody's feelings will get hurt. You know? <laughs> and uh, and that's really the main reason. And 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 so we're. We're just like kids in a candy store. We're just having fun. You yeah. Know? And uh, I play lots of different keyboard styles, and, and Jay's an ace, uh, the guitar guy. Plus, he, you know, he, he's, he's a good all around musician, period. And uh, we're just having fun with it. Cool. Oh, you know, we talked about Steve Perry just a moment ago. And um, here's a question from we've got a lot of questions from listeners here, by the way. Oh, uh, really? Brandon Klopp from Sacramento, California mm-hmm. wants to know about your collaboration with Steve Perry on that Street Talk record. And how, basically, how did you guys get connected? How did you and Steve get connected? And, and give us uh, an idea about your session experiences from that album. Um, well, as I mentioned before, uh, I had worked in White Plains, New York on a record for Michael Johnson. As a as a musician, actually, I had a couple of songs on that record, but right, yeah. the drummer on the record was uh, Andy Newmark, mm-hmm. and uh, it, we you know we hit it off. And we were having a lot of fun on the se- session, and, and he he was familiar with my songs, and he kind of got to know me a little bit. And um, because of doing that, Steve Perry uh, is a friend of his, and Steve was getting ready to do his record, and. And I guess, uh, from the way I understand it, is that Andy uh, was talking to Steve one day and, and said, hey, you know, you know who you need to write with for this record is this Randy Goodrum, because he, uh, you know, he wrote Bluer Than Blue and You Needed Me and some other things. And, mm-hmm. and I think Steve said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this sounds okay. So, so I was in Westport, Connecticut, in my house, and I get a phone call, and it's Steve. And he says, uh, when can you come to L.A.? And I said, tomorrow at 11 a.m. <laughs> 
what it just so happened I, I'd been going regularly to L.A., so I literally did have a ticket to, wow, go to L.A. Okay. And so I, the next day I just drove up, and uh, and as I said before, I, I I didn't want to just sit and write a, a, a sort of a faux journey song with him. I thought I'd better give him something that's genuinely me. Right. So I brought a little start for uh, the little vamp for uh, which later became Foolish Heart. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so we wrote that day, and I and, and it went really well. And I thought, well, that's really cool. I'm going to get a song maybe on this record. And then as I was leaving, he says, so uh, what time tomorrow? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, you're coming back tomorrow, right? And I said, oh, yeah. So <laughs> so I wrote like four days in a row. We wrote four songs. Wow, that's and, cool. Uh, and then he, you know, I went back to Connecticut. I mean, I did some other stuff in L.A., went back to Connecticut. And he called me up and he says, so are you going to come write some more stuff? And I said, yeah, when? <laughs> that's and awesome. So I hopped on and went out and wrote, I think, four more. So, wow, that's awesome. That's very yeah, neat. and then of course he needed me to do clean up on. Uh, oh, Sherry, they had the they had the song and uh, and the track. Not that they didn't have the track, but they had the song, and he was familiar with my lyrics by then. And he said, "Do you think you'd give a whack at the lyrics?" And I said, "Sure." So I wrote the lyrics for that one. Very cool. Yeah, it's another uh, song like "I'll Be Over You" that starts with. Just his voice, just a yeah. Uh, it's yeah, a cold start. start from the from the beginning. The thing, the thing about guys like that, and, and they start off, and, and they they don't go through the usual song mm-hmm. mill, you know, uh, is they they start off and they, and they work in bands and stuff. They they don't they have such a fresher approach. They they're not bound by rules. They mm-hmm. say, well, let's just mm-hmm. go here now. You know, it's like in the Toto records that uh, instead of a bridge, they have a guitar solo. Which yeah. is across a melody that has nothing to do with the rest of the song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that to me is, hey, why not? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no rules. We want to talk to you uh, real quickly about a couple of your solo releases. And, and Uwe Reith is one of our correspondents who lives in Germany and is a big fan of yours, Randy. And the next couple of questions are for him. And the first one is about your 1985 uh, solo record titled Solitary Nights. It's on the GRP label. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, based primarily, he, Uwe says, uh, as a MIDI in, in sequences almost entirely. And, you know, he was just curious to know why did you opt to uh, or did you not involve uh, many studio players on that? Uh, well, they they liked the demos and, and they uh, they liked what they heard and they wanted me to just sort of uh, do it like that. So uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, I did play live piano and stuff like that, but uh-huh. uh, that was sort of like uh, I was just doing it per their uh, per their instruction, you know. And I kind of thought that was going to be the first of many records, but because uh, they were great guys, we really liked them. But and we uh-huh. had a hit right away with with. Uh, Silhouette. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah right. I think they weren't they they weren't expecting that. They they weren't. Ex- I don't think they they were used to having uh, uh, chart records, and uh, it, it you know it entered the AC charts at number fourteen or something, and and they were like, oh my gosh. Uh, so, do you think uh, do you think that the fact that it was nineteen eighty five and you know midian sequencing was really becoming hot that could have been one of the reasons? I, I guess I know that uh, uh, Dave Grusin uh, did the Nightlines record, and I had songs on that. Right. Was there when he was making it, uh-huh. and he did it with uh, a Lindrum, and and uh, so I mean I, I, I sort of there, the, the the only thing that was um, sequenced was uh, the drums. The rest yeah. of the stuff was live played, but it was a uh, so a lot of people think it was a totally sequenced record, but it wasn't. It was just yeah. uh, just the drums. Well, if I recall correctly, that uh, Dave Cousin album Nightlines, uh, I think you, you you sang a song. I believe is it was TikTok. You actually did some vocals. I on did that. two. two sang one song called TikTok, which yeah. is mine, mm-hmm. and I wrote another so- song with Dave, Jay, Jay Graydon called Haunting Me, which yeah. is on there. Yeah, I, and I, actually, I, and there was a song I wrote with Dave uh, Loggins called Somewhere Between Old and New York, which was uh, Phoebe Snow sang on that record. Yeah. I thought that was a very nice uh, vocal vocal thing uh, that you did with on that on TikTok, and I, if I recall correctly, I think it was even Nathan East that was doing the bass lines, and it's uh, actually can, it was. Uh, oh gosh, I never can think of who that. Who was it? Because uh, I think. Oh, I, it's not Nathan East. No, but it's it's. it's uh, Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller. There, yeah, there it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a great track. Uh, TikTok oh, is one of those. Unbelievable on that. I'd like to meet him someday and tell him. <laughs> well, Uwe also mentioned uh, that the, the Words and Music is one of his favorite albums. And oh, he, how nice. And he wanted to know if songs like uh, 2020 and, and I'll Be Over You were recorded prior to George Benson and Toto's records. Uh, 
No. Uh, we wrote 2020 for George Benson. Gotcha. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, when I, I, that was one of the songs I did with Steve Kipner that, uh, uh, unlike other songs I've done, when, when I would do a demo, I would do it sort of aimed maybe at somebody, but not so, so strongly that it couldn't be maybe skewed a little bit this way or that way for an, another artist in case they didn't want it. Yeah. But in the case of 2020, uh, Steve Lucas, and that, uh, Steve Kipner and I wrote that, and that was the first song we wrote together. And... Um, uh, Russ Tidelman, who was producing George at the time, uh, uh-huh. and, you know, we contacted him and said, hey, we're writing something for George. And so we had their ear. Didn't mean they were going to cut it. Right. But uh, we, uh, <laughs> what's funny is we we did the demo and, and, and we're thinking, you know, we, we really need to think of, you know, uh, how he's going to cut it and all that. So we gave him this really nice track that we did, like, we you know, I drug all my sense over to Steve's and and we, you know, we, we crammed as much stuff in the studio as we could to try to get it uh, as, as full as possible, the track. And, and they ended up using our track, but they didn't just, we didn't just give them a track. We had to take all of our gear down to another studio and oh, recreate the, uh, <laughs> the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but but that, was, that was really terrific. Uh, I love that record. And, uh, and then the other song I wrote with Steve that was real skewed towards an artist was uh, If She Would Have Been Faithful, which was written primarily and only for Chicago. And uh-huh. matter of fact, if they had passed on it, it would have been like a month and a half's work for nothing. Wow. So. <laughs> right, one final question from Uwe over in Germany. Uh, yeah. For the Swedish and European fans, he wants to know about your collaboration with Peter Freistet on his album and, and your working relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I met Peter uh, when I first started going to Stockholm, and uh, I, I heard his... Um, record he did for BMG, I think, uh, mm-hmm. that he cut with a bunch of L.A. guys. And I just like Peter, and I like his music. And, yeah. you know, uh, people think that, that writers like me who have, uh, have had some hits and stuff, we only try to write for the real well-known big-time people. But, but uh, you know, if I like an artist, and he's, you know, uh, he's hardly known at all, and I, and I feel moved to write for him, I will. And I, I really liked Peter, and I liked what, I knew what he was trying to do. Right. And, uh, and I, matter of fact, I've got a new thing on on a record that he's gonna. It's just being released that he did with Joseph Williams. Right. And I, I've got some work on that as well that I'm very proud of. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the the thing is, I think the thing to do is do the great work because I've had uh, and worry about and worry about the success later uh, in, in some cases because a lot of my early hits were really unexpected. I mean. Uh, they they were not linear at all. I mean, there's nothing. Uh, as a matter of fact, our business is not very linear. It's mostly chaotic. Stuff just happens. <laughs> and you just need to be prepared. Yeah. For when the phone rings, you better be ready. And so, right. But because you know, like in the case of you needed me, Anne Murray was uh, she had had already had a full career, and I'm not saying that that was the last album she was going to do when she did that, but mm-hmm. it certainly was not. Um, I, you know, she she'd been around a while. And so I kind of it kind of reinvented her career when she did "You Need Me" because it started her off doing a, a whole different bag of, of songs, yeah. a whole different style. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that that just taught me that the work is really what's important. And uh, you know because that was a hit during the disco period. Sure, right. When That's songs true. like that, you couldn't you couldn't get those songs cut with a. <laughs> you couldn't. Yeah, you're right. Right. And and the the week before it was number one. Uh, the Donna Summer version of MacArthur Park Disco wow. was number one. That shows you the environment that it was out in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, my you know, it's just do the best work you can with people that really move you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Peter's ever going to sell a lot of records, but hopefully he does. Well, all I know is the work I've done on his records, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, and uh, and I like him. You know, if he calls me and says, "Hey," I've got a, a melody or something like that, then, you know, I, it's a very credible phone call. Yeah. I just uh, got an email from Peter a couple of days ago that I need to respond to, but um, he's, uh, I think he's interested in being, being on the show. So, mm-hmm. Eddie, we're going to have to get Peter on here one of these days. Definitely. Yeah, he's a great, his heart's in the right place, uh, and he's, it just so happens to be a great guy, but, uh, yeah. but a lot of times uh, 
uh, great artists are not great people, but uh, but they're an amazing <laughs> artists. Yeah, Brian Pearson, our uh, our correspondent in Chicago, has another follow up question, and it's more about a classic album that included Jeff Porcaro and Steve Kahn playing on it, and it was uh, called Fool's Paradise. Yes, and he's he's questioning: Is it going to be released re released anytime soon on either your website or on I, iTunes? I don't, I don't see how it could be. I okay. mean, I, I did that for Polydor. Yeah, and um, you know they own it and. Uh, I I I can't I don't know if it's going to be. I know a lot of people uh, buy it on eBay for outrageous money. Yeah, that was at the cusp of when CDs were uh, when they were going from vinyl to CD. Right. It's the same with Solitary Nights. I mean, there's so few CDs of either of those records. Sure. Uh, but boy, was that ever a fun record to make! I mean, that band, uh, Elliot Shiner, I got to say, was genius in the way he put that band together because he came to nashville and we picked some songs out i was still living in nashville and then he put that band together you know me on keyboard neil jason on bass jeff Picaro, steve Kahn. i'd never worked or met any of them and we went to automated in new york and down in times square is where it used to be and i mean they were all like first takes they didn't even need rehearsals hardly those guys were just they were just so good and yeah. uh and the tracks were just amazing and so mm-hmm. Um, that that part alone was uh, was unforgettable for me. Plus, uh, you know, Elliot was working on the Steely Dan stuff all along, and mm-hmm. you know, that one day Fagan came in and sat for a while. That was wow. That was like having uh, the Dalai Lama come. <laughs> That's <by>. true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve Kahn, uh, we we've had him as a guest on our show before too, and he's he's a phenomenal guitarist. Oh, and he's so tasty. Oh my yeah. gosh, he, he everything he played was like Smithsonian. <laughs> Smithsonian, I love it. Well, I just want to close with a few more questions, and and these have to do uh, everything with Chet Atkins. And you, of course, had a great relationship with Chet, and I'm sure we could spend probably an entire show just chatting about this topic. But, you know, tell me kind of in a nutshell your experiences with Chet and what touring and performing and and writing with him meant to you in your career. Well, here's the thing. Chet was, was, I've often called him my mentor in Nashville. It's funny, you know, when I moved to Nashville, there were several points along the way that I thought, boy, if if I made a big mistake moving here, I mean, I'm I'm not country, uh, I'm southern, but I'm not really uh, you know into country music and all that. But 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 when I first moved there, which was the early '70s, you know, Chet was was really making a lot of records in, and there was some really interesting stuff going on. Bob Dylan, Jesse Winchester, Dobie Gray. Uh, there, was, there was jazz being cut there. You know, Joe Tex. All kinds of music was being cut there. And it wasn't just country town. And and uh, what happened was when I joined the road with, uh, went on the road with Jerry Reed, he wanted me to play with him because he knew I was a jazz player. And, you know, he was an incredible musician and would work up these great arrangements and stuff. And I ended up playing on a lot of his early records. Well, one day I get a phone call from Chet's secretary. And, you know, I was a scratching out a few demos, but not really in the, in the seriously in the record uh, studio business uh, yet. You know, I was I was playing a few sessions, but not much. And she says, Chet wants you to be at at uh, Columbia A, which is interesting because he was the head of RCA. But anyway, at 10 a.m. on Thursday or something. So I went and I, I was petrified. I don't think I slept the night before because <laughs> I thought, my God, the one of the greatest producers of all time is out there yeah. calling me to come play on something. So I walk in the rec, I walk in the studio, and there's nobody there. And I thought, oh my god, my my career is over. I have blown it. I'm in the wrong place. You know, they're having a session. They're waiting for me to show up. So and then suddenly the door opens, and in walks Chet, and he's got a guitar, and he walks over and says, "Sit down by the piano." So I set the piano. He says. So uh, Jerry tells me you're a jazz player. And I said, well, yeah, I am. And he goes, well, show me some interesting chords and, and, and scales and things. that I, you know." And so we, uh, I remember we started working on Camp Down Races, of all things. <laughs> and I showed him uh, a bunch of altered chords you could use to make it more interesting. And, and, uh, and, and you know, we, we uh, worked on a few other things like that. And then he says, come on, let's go grab some lunch. And so I got in the elevator uh, to go back downstairs, and, and Porter Wagoner was in the elevator, uh-huh. and you know with his wagon wheel, everything on it. Exactly. And he says, uh, "Hey, Chet, how you doing?" He says, "Who you got there?" And he says, uh, "This is my 
this is my friend Randy. He goes, well, actually, he's not my friend. I thought, oh, no, I'm blowing it. What, what happened? What happened? He goes, no, actually, he's my teacher. <laughs> right. And I thought, and he said, well, if, he, if you're Chet's teacher, you must be damn good. So <laughs> anyway, so what happened was Chet started uh, using me on sessions. He would have me come to the session and just sit over on the side. And, and there would be a part in the, while they were working up the song, because they were all head arrangements, and they would say, you know, let, let's figure out what to do here. And Chet says, well, Randy, you got any ideas about how we could make this transition a little better here? So I'd mentioned a couple of things, and, and, and finally I, I, I looked at, I think it was Ray Eddington, one of the guitar players, and I, on one of the breaks, and I said, hey, man, I'm, I don't want to come off obnoxious here making these suggestions. You guys are such legendary players. And he says, he says, Randy, he says, we all have been sitting in that chair that you've been sitting in. That's, that's just what Chet does. And uh, so wow. that was just his, his way. And then yeah. uh, after a while, he, he called me uh, to play on the Chester and Lester record, right. the one that was uh, Les Paul. Yeah, and yeah. He won a Grammy for that one, and, and right. that was like, My that goodness. opened the door for me. I, I, I became a serious studio musician in that town after that. And unfortunately, it wasn't... Uh, but about a year or so later that I started having things cut as a, as a writer. And the minute that happened, I had to take the other hat off because uh, you, have to be, you have to be available 100% of the time if you're going to be a session player. And uh, yeah. I knew I couldn't be. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's, that's a Chet story. And there's tons and tons of Chet stories. I read a cool one somewhere in an interview online about your doubling story when you first sat down and played for Chet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I played the piano solo on Lightning Rod, right, right, they thought there was something wrong. You know, they said uh, you have to do it again. And I said, "Did it get on tape?" And and I said, "Well, wait a minute." And they looked at it and said, "Well, yeah, there it is." So one of the one of the channels must not be playing. I said, "Well, why don't you see?" And they they, they said, "No, nope, they're both playing." <laughs> so, <it was> just... <laughs> not that I was that great of a, a player, but but well. That was that was a fun day. Yeah, that's <laughs> very cool. Very very cool. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts about Chet. That's that's those are very cool stories. Absolutely, and Randy. We really appreciate all the time you spent with us. This oh, we've... listen, it's been a pleasure. I, I love talking this kind of smack, and uh, this is uh, it's my biz. You know, it's 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 interesting and uh, unpredictable, and and uh, I feel blessed to have, uh, run run across it as an as a vocation. I guess just to uh, just to follow up with one last thing. Uh, you know, 2011 is here, and I just, I'm just curious to know what kinds of things you're working on now and, and what's coming up for you this year. Oh, I, I've got a lot of uh, new people that I've been writing uh, uh, stuff with, uh, a new group of people in, in Sweden that I run across uh, last May that I'm, gonna, uh, that I'm preparing a bunch of new songs, and, and I've been going back to L.A. more, and, and uh, I've got a, a, some new writers there that I'm working with for both for the record, comp- for record business and for uh, TV and film, and uh, I've got a script for a, a musical that I might actually try to write some uh, some, some songs for, and of course the Jar record. The Jar right. record is is uh, ever present, and so I know that, that that sounds a little ambiguous, but you know, yeah. So is this business? <laughs> well, the cool thing is we'll, we'll keep in touch with you, and when you get closer to the time uh, for releasing the next Jar album, we'll definitely let, let our audience know because I know there's a lot of interest. Yes. Oh, listen. I I hope so, and uh, we uh, that's what we're hoping for because uh, we're 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 doing our best to get it as as good as it can be. Awesome. Well, Randy, thanks again, and uh, let's let's touch base down the road again. All right, sounds perfect. Have a good day. All thanks, right, take Randy. care. We'll see you. Bye bye. Special thanks to Randy Goodrum for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Rupe Reith, and Mikhail Ingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Music Cast.